0: Growing up, we always went to Cape Cod for a week. We stayed in motor lodges and tiny little homes. The one memory that stands out is that one night out of the week, my parents would take me and my two sisters out to dinner, and we would have ice cream Sundays for dinner.
1: This is the television travel host, Samantha Brown, sharing a personal travel
0: story. And to see my mother devour ice cream and love it the way I loved ice cream. I connected with her, and you know my sisters, we still talk about this. This is what we remember from our vacation, is when mom and dad let us have hot fudge sundays for dinner. Everything we eat has a story to tell.
1: Welcome to If This Food Could Talk, a history show for everyone who eats. I'm Claudia Hanna. I teach Mediterranean cooking classes and lead culinary tours to Cyprus, Greece, and Turkey. I introduce food lovers from around the globe to a taste of the old world and to the history behind what we're eating. I called up Samantha Brown because I wanted to talk to her about a food we're both crazy about, ice cream.
0: Who isn't a lover of ice cream? I think it's one of the most universally loved, you know, food products in the world. She'd know. She's traveled the world, visiting some
1: 75 countries over the last 25 years. She's now the host of the public television series, Samantha Brown's Places to Love. So I asked, what kinds of frozen
0: treats have you found in these places? Taiwan, they have mango ice, and it's mounded high. It's probably uh, 8 to 10 inches high. Uh, Unbelievable. Bowl (sighs) of uh, shaved ice, cream, sugar, mangoes, and it's just beautiful. On another trip to Seoul, South Korea, Samantha still laments the ice cream she didn't get to try. The ice cream that got away, I would call it, is they have something called japangi, and it's fascinating. Their cone is made of corn, and it looks like that. It's sort of yellowy, like a puffed corn, but it's in the shape of almost like a saxophone.
1: And Samantha says she's been able to encounter new ways of eating ice
0: cream. We did this ice cream shop in Auckland, New Zealand, called Giapo. Their feeling was that the way we enjoy ice cream um, can be boring. And so they really started to experiment with like how we receive ice cream. So they did like wearable cones, like edible finger puppets. <laughs> but they shaped the cone with fingers and and they would put ice cream in the tiny cones and then they had these really fun wearable lips. So it was just this like chocolate covered, you know, like that hard magic shell. What was lovely was not only were people having fun with this, they were opening up to others. And I realized really what they created was this whole social order of how we interact.
1: That's the thing about ice cream. It's not just any delicious food, and it's not just any dessert. It's special. It's soothing, joyful, even thrilling, all at once. So, as the long days of summer are drawing to a close, we wanted to bring you an episode as uplifting as the icy treat itself. Today, a story in three parts. We're covering three different eras in American history, in which ice cream plays a surprising delightful and very important role. Plus, I'll share a recipe and a memory of my favorite childhood ice cream. All of this coming up after the break. I don't care how old you are. I'm willing to bet that you have a memory of enjoying an ice cream cone on a hot summer's day. You might be in the park or on the beach or eating little cones from your fingers like Samantha. But whatever you're doing and whatever the flavor, one thing's for certain. In that moment, you are delighted. That's how it usually goes for food historian Sarah Wasberg-Johnson.
2: I'm Scandinavian-American, so we eat ice cream year-round, right, even in the wintertime. And my great-grandparents on my mom's side were dairy farmers, and I married the son of a dairy farmer, so... We consume a probably unhealthy amount of dairy in our family.
1: <laughs> she says ice cream, who makes it, who eats it, is a window into different periods of American history.
2: It's just kind of a lens to study what was going on in the world that's influencing why ice cream, for instance, becomes popular. That kind of tells us something about who we are today and, and why we do the things we do as a culture.
1: Today, Sarah's going to take us on a deep dive into America's love of ice cream. But first, let's be clear. It is not an American invention.
2: Iced milk dates back to ancient China, and iced, sweetened fruit desserts date back to ancient Persia.
1: Some scholars say that a cup, meant for crushed ice and fruit, was buried with an ancient Egyptian king. Ice pits have been discovered across the Roman Empire. But as far as we can tell, Persians were the first people to add sugar to their frozen desserts. And then Arabs brought the treats to medieval Europe. Until finally, in the mid-18th century, sometime around the American Revolution, ice cream arrives in America.
2: And certainly if we're going to go presidential history, by the time George Washington is in the executive mansion... They're having ice cream, and we know this because they're purchasing the equipment
1: to produce it. So, in the earliest days of America, with the ink still wet on the Declaration of Independence, it's pretty safe to assume that our country's founders were enjoying ice cream. This was a time of immense change in America. The British were out, and a new republic had been declared. But there was no model to work from. No proof that this new system of governance could succeed. As the first president of the United States, George Washington had a lot to prove. The stakes were high and everything had to be perfect, including the way he and Martha entertained. Let me set the scene. The White House has not even been built yet. Philadelphia is still the capital of the country. And George Washington has invited you to dinner at the executive mansion.
2: What we consider a mansion today, mansions in the 18th century, even among the very wealthy, were much more modest.
1: Sarah says that back then, if you were throwing a big dinner party for 20 or 30 people, you'd clear out the biggest room in the house and you use what you've got to set a lovely table.
2: It might be boards on top of sawhorses or you might have a table with enough
1: leaves that you could accommodate enough people. These dinner parties were a chance to show off wealth and style to important guests.
2: So I think at the time of George Washington, they were doing more French-style courses, where you would kind of put everything on the table at once, and people would kind of pick and choose. So your
1: meats, vegetables, and desserts would all be out in front of you banquet-style. Guests at this table might include former soldiers, foreign dignitaries, and statesmen some of the most influential people in the country and beyond. So, what extravagant treat would George Washington serve to delight and surprise his most important guests? A delicacy only available to the lucky few. Ice cream. But it's not just scooped into a bowl. This is a totally different situation.
2: It's served in a mold. And this is very popular in the 18th century to serve foods in, like, unnatural shapes.
1: (laughs) At first, ice cream is sculpted into simple forms,
2: pyramids, towers. But as the tin technology and the pewter and silver technology get more elaborate, you start to have more elaborate shapes. And there's also a trend of, like, making ice cream in the shapes of other things. So you're disguising it as a different food. There was, you know, period commentary of people going to these dinner parties and they're getting dessert and they get served a plate of a little bundle of asparagus. And they're like, what is going on here? And they cut into it and it's ice cream. Wait,
1: just like that show, is it cake? It is
2: exactly like, is it cake? But it's ice cream instead.
1: (laughs) You heard that right. People in the 18th century quite possibly including the very first president of the United States, were pranking each other with ice cream. A Philadelphia newspaper around this time published a story about a sea captain who goes out to dinner. He's served what he thinks is a peach, takes a bite and then quote, spit it out upon his plate, claiming with a horrid oath, a painted snowball, by God. It might seem ridiculous that this story even made it to a newspaper in the nation's capital. But you have to understand, at the time, everything about this dessert is a wonder, a novelty. And in the 18th century, it's only available to the wealthy. So ice cream starts out in America as the ultimate exclusive treat.
2: So to be able to have this frozen, cold thing is at first quite shocking to a lot of people who'd never experienced it before. But then it becomes this status symbol that you have the resources to provide this special thing. And as we know today, it's also incredibly delicious. So it it's kind of like this addictive combination of, of status and wealth and deliciousness that make it really popular.
1: So we know who was eating ice cream in the 18th century. And we know what it looked like back then. But what did it taste like? Well, there's another presidential figure who can help us answer that question. Thomas Jefferson. He's often credited as the first person to bring vanilla ice cream to America.
2: There's documentation he has a handwritten recipe for vanilla
1: ice cream. It calls for good cream, egg yolks, sugar, and a stick of vanilla.
2: Vanilla ice cream in particular, we think of that as a very commonplace, kind of boring flavor. But in the time period, vanilla was actually very expensive. Most common people were flavoring their desserts with rum or with rose water or with wine.
1: Honestly, all those flavors sound pretty delicious to me compared to, say, oyster ice cream. Yeah, that is exactly what First Lady Dolly Madison was serving at the White House in the early 1800s. Well, that's how the legend goes, at least. Sarah says we don't actually know for sure what flavors the First Lady was serving at her parties. But we do know that oyster ice cream existed. It's documented in a cookbook called The Virginia Housewife from 1824.
2: Oyster ice cream debatable how good it is. I think one thing to understand is that it doesn't include sugar. So you're basically making oyster soup, straining the oysters out, and then you're freezing that.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Well, oyster soup aside, why was ice cream something only the rich and powerful could afford? And why was its existence such a novelty? Well, let's think back for a moment to how it was even possible for George Washington and the other elites to enjoy it in the first place. The United
2: States has all of the conditions that are necessary to produce ice cream. We have easy access to the Caribbean sugar trade. We have ample access to pasture for dairy cattle. In the Northeast, in particular, it gets cold enough in the wintertime that there is abundant natural ice. So if you have property, you can harvest
1: it. And we need to take a moment here to recognize a darker truth. The elites of our newly formed country owned slaves. This horrifying reality of forced labor is what afforded them the ability to make ice cream so cheaply, along with the rest of their meals. And that's not
2: something that always gets recognized in American history. A lot of people throughout the colonies are using enslaved labor in their kitchens because it is very difficult, heavy manual labor. You are cooking over an open hearth. You're using heavy cast iron equipment. It's hot, you have to haul water, you have to haul wood.
1: Slavery is what made the comfortable, routine life of white people possible. But what also gets left out of the history books is that enslaved people were often the innovators behind these historic dishes. Remember Thomas Jefferson and his famous vanilla ice cream recipe? Well, it likely wasn't his. More than a decade before Jefferson became president, he was the minister to France. And on his many trips to Europe, he did develop a keen interest in the culinary arts. He's often cited as the person who popularized French cuisine in America, including, believe it or not, mac and cheese, French fries and vanilla ice cream. But
2: he's not the person actually implementing most of these ideas. Right. That's his enslaved kitchen staff, including chef James Hemings, who actually does not go with him to the White House. He negotiates his freedom before Jefferson becomes
1: president. James Hemings was brought to Jefferson's estate at just nine years old and worked as an enslaved member of the Jefferson household for most of his life. Jefferson, who wanted a personal chef trained in the art of French cuisine, sent Hemings to France when he was 19. There, he apprenticed under some of the finest chefs in the country before becoming head of the Jefferson kitchen. So, more than likely, it was actually Hemmings who introduced everything from creme brulee to that famous recipe for vanilla ice cream. And Hemmings is not the only Black chef who features prominently in the history of ice cream in the U.S. Another man, Augustus Jackson, worked in the White House kitchen for 20 years.
2: He ends up opening an ice cream shop. He's listed as a confectioner in Philadelphia in a Philadelphia directory in 1837.
1: It's widely believed that Augustus Jackson invented a more efficient way to make ice cream that's still used today, adding salt to the outer layer of ice, lowering its melting point. This keeps the cream cold for long enough to churn it into a smooth, frozen dessert. Then there was Sally Shad an emancipated Black woman who reportedly made fruit ice creams for her catering company in Delaware. The story goes, Shad's strawberry ice cream got the attention of First Lady Dolly Madison, who then served it at her husband's inauguration party. And let's be real, strawberry ice cream sounds like a step up from that frozen oyster soup. Sarah says it's these Black American innovators who helped make ice cream available to the public and not just to the elite.
2: Ice cream starts to become a lot more accessible in the early 19th century because of people like Augustus Jackson and Sally Shad, who are working as commercial confectioners. And that really starts in the 1820s and 30s as the United States is urbanizing, right? We're starting to get cities, which is going to support a business like that. But also when we get the development of like commercial ice harvest, so you don't have to own your own pond anymore to be able to have access to natural ice in the summertime.
1: Ice becoming more available to people at home was a major turning point. It's hard to overstate the impact of people being able to refrigerate foods by putting a block of ice into an insulated cabinet, an icebox. And when there's more ice for everyone, there's more ice cream, too. After the break, find out what role ice cream played in women's liberation and why the U.S. Navy built its own floating ice cream factory during World War II. All that and more coming right up. This week on If This Food Could Talk, we're covering ice cream in America and the surprisingly important role it plays in our history. Now, on to the late 19th century. This is a time when ice cream has become more widely available to the middle classes. And there's a new concept that's captured the imagination of Americans everywhere. Join me as we step inside the soda fountain.
2: You're a kid, right? And you're going out in public with your mom and you stop at the soda fountain. So it's... In a pharmacy, probably you go in, and pharmacies are usually like long, narrow, kind of dark buildings with a lot of wooden shelves and a lot of, you know, colorful items on the shelves. But in the back, there's a long bar with a mirror behind it and all these kinds of spigots, and there's a lot of people. And you can hear like the <sighs> of soda water being dispensed and maybe the clink of spoons. You could get an ice cream soda. You could get a milkshake. You could have an ice cream sundae where you have toppings. These are all things that are being developed in this time period.
1: At first, soda fountains are not really standalone businesses. They're a new offering built inside of existing pharmacies. This is a time when candy and medicine are not as far apart from each other as you might imagine. The science of nutrition is brand new And people on the cutting edge are thinking about food in a whole new way.
2: So we start to understand that there are carbohydrates and fats and proteins. And guess what? Food has all three of those things naturally present. Milk. And sugar is seen as a good thing because it's a carbohydrate and it gives you energy. And so, you know, candy and soda and ice cream, these were all safe, acceptable, fun, delicious things for children and even adults to consume kind of without restriction.
1: So ice cream rises on the coattails of milk to become one of the healthy treats of the early 19th century. Soda fountains start popping up as independent businesses, and they become a fashionable place to drink soda, eat ice cream, and to see and be seen. So the interesting thing about soda
2: fountains, and part of the reason why they become so popular, is that they are a safe place for women and children to go in public. This is kind of a sea change that's happening in the late 1800s, that women and children are eating in public. They're going out in public. You get the development of, like, department stores. Restaurants still kind of off-limits for women. That's still very much, like, a men's world. Saloons are very off-limits. So it becomes a place where young people of both sexes can kind kind of socialize a little. You might be there with your mom, and there might be, like, some cute guys in the corner and you're eyeballing each other, you know, like.
1: (laughs) And just as soda fountains were becoming a space for women to explore newfound social liberation, something else had been happening in America, saloon culture. A growing unease around alcohol use had been stirring in the country for decades. And believe it or not, ice cream was about to emerge as a moral alternative. Soon, the soda fountain would play a key role in the fight against debauchery and corruption, offering a different kind of watering hole to people in need of righteous intervention.
2: You may tell the liquor seller not to crawl. He will never get a nickel from me The temperance movement grows out of changes in American alcohol consumption in the early 19th century, like first half of the 19th century. So we go from, you know, consuming like beer and hard cider and wine to really consuming a lot of distilled liquor.
1: Up until this point, people in the U.S. were used to beer and wine that were not particularly high proof by today's standards. Culturally, the invigorating powers of alcohol had been considered relatively healthy, and it wasn't uncommon to drink it throughout the day, even at breakfast. So once widely available high-proof liquor was thrown in the mix, things really started to go off the rails. And that
2: causes some upheaval in family life that a lot of people are very against. And so it becomes kind of this religious crusade against alcohol starting in like the 1830s and 40s and then really taking off post-Civil War. Some really radical people were, like, against yeast bread because yeast produces alcohol as part of the fermentation process. I mean, people were really deep in the anti-alcohol fervor. You may tell the politicians they may go I am in for prohibition, head and toe For at last I've turned my coat And I'll cast the temperance
1: vote. People are writing temperance songs, signing temperance pledges, and different counties across the country are voting on whether or not to be dry or wet. Soda fountains come along at just the right time.
2: It became a public meeting place for people to gather that was completely divorced from alcohol. Even restaurants, you know, they have wine, they have aperitifs and distilled liqueurs and stuff on the menu. But soda fountains, there's no alcohol anywhere.
1: But at a soda fountain, you could still kind of have a bar experience.
2: A lot of them look surprisingly like saloons, right? There's a high counter bar. Sometimes there's stools at the bar. Sometimes there's like the brass rail footrest at the bar. There's mirrors. And there's even like, you know, taps, For the soda, like you would see taps maybe for a beer. So I don't know whether that was on purpose, trying to kind of lure people away from the saloon, or if that's just kind of the best way for serving beverages in that time period. (laughs) I think the temperance movement in general did decline the consumption of distilled liquor, Whether or not the soda fountain played a direct role in that is kind of debatable, but I think the biggest impact it had was probably that it gave young people, particularly young men, a place to go and socialize that didn't have alcohol.
1: It's hard to imagine any other sweet treat that could be powerful enough to lure drinkers away from the effects of hard alcohol. The soda fountain offered people of all ages an alternative, a place to meet— pause, maybe even flirt a little, and indulge in a moment of pure pleasure. And it wouldn't be the last time that ice cream would come to the rescue, giving young men a respite from the pressures of a very complicated world.
2: Somewhere in the Pacific, a U.S. Navy carrier task force steams into Japanese waters. Lookouts signal the approach of enemy planes, and anti-aircraft shells fill the sky. during World War II, when destroyers and other small ships would rescue pilots who'd had to, like, bail out. When they delivered them to a larger ship, like an aircraft carrier, they would ransom them for ice cream. You can't have them back until you give us 10 gallons of ice
1: cream. Yes, you heard that right. During World War II, the US Navy was paying its own sailors to rescue stranded pilots with ice cream.
2: I mean, it could depend on how long it had been since the guys on the destroyer had had ice cream. <laughs> how serious it was. But yes, this is a, like a naval tradition that you ransom your pilots for ice cream.
1: The Navy and ice cream have been closely intertwined, going back to the First World War. It all starts on July 1st, 1914 when ardent Prohibitionist and Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, announces, the Navy is officially going dry. No alcohol will be allowed on board any naval vessel.
2: And so it's like, how do you keep your naval crews happy on these long voyages where they're out in the middle of nowhere with limited provisions and you're stuck on a ship with the same... 100 or 250 guys, how do you stop them from fighting? How do you keep them happy? (laughs) Like, how do you keep morale up? And ice cream becomes a really big part of that.
1: At first, the Navy purchases their ice cream from other vendors on shore.
2: But because they're not controlling how the ice cream is made, they were having, like, disease outbreaks, I mean, it could be something as simple as strep throat, and it could be something as dangerous as, like, tuberculosis.
1: So, eventually, the Navy gets itself into the ice cream making business, for its service members at least. They use powdered mixes that just require adding water. And by the time World War II rolls around...
2: They have developed a training class where you could get trained in this new ice cream making machinery as part of your naval training. Right. And every ship had to have ice cream.
1: And just to be clear, this wasn't true of any other desserts. People weren't being trained in baking brownies or cookies or birthday cakes.
2: In 1944, the U.S. Navy used
1: 5,500,000 pounds of ice cream mix. That's 5 million 500,000 pounds of chocolate, vanilla, coffee, and maple ice cream powder. And it wasn't just the Navy. There are stories of American bomber crews strapping buckets of ice cream mix to the gun compartments in the back of their planes. The added water would freeze at high altitudes, and the vibrations and gunfire churned the mixture until it was smooth. A 1943 New York Times article even wrote about it, saying... Care must be taken to drop bombs, and not ice cream, on enemy targets. This U.S. military obsession with ice cream had a lot to do with morale. But there was another added benefit, the health of American troops. World War II,
2: particularly on naval ships, was really the first time a lot of young men had ample access to nutritious food.
1: In army induction centers all over the nation,
2: examining doctors found rejectees starved for the food to give them the strength of bone and muscle to fight and win a war. So 1941, as part of the draft, there's this study that comes out that says, like, 40% of America's young men are malnourished. And so there was a ton of effort put into making sure that the troops had ample access to high enough quantity of food, but also that it was like nutritious. And I think that's part of the role that ice cream plays in this is that at the time it was considered more nutritious than other desserts because it had that milk protein egg content to it that a lot of other desserts did not have.
1: As the American public rationed food at home, the U.S. Navy doubled down on their commitment to giving every sailor the diet they deserved. And in 1945, as hundreds of thousands of naval personnel were deployed in the Western Pacific, the Navy made an important investment in ice cream.
2: A lot of the smaller ships have the refrigeration and freezer capacity to store ice cream, but they can't make it themselves, which is why the Navy builds this ice cream factory on a cement barge.
1: To make absolutely sure that every sailor got all the ice cream they wanted, the Navy created a floating ice cream factory. It cost $1 million to outfit a barge with ice cream-making equipment. It could hold up to an estimated 2,000 gallons of ice cream all at once. And there was no fear of running out. This thing pumped out 10 gallons every seven minutes. That is enough to feed over 100 people. It was dragged around by a tugboat to restock smaller ships. The ice cream barge was deployed the same year as the Battle of Okinawa, the largest amphibious assault of the Pacific. The battle raged for over three months, and American casualties would reach almost 50,000. In the face of all this, perhaps an ice cream factory seems... Juvenile, ridiculous. But naval history during World War II is packed with ice cream story after ice cream story. And all of these stories are moments that survivors remember.
2: It's 1942 during the Battle of the Coral Sea, and the aircraft carrier USS Lexington is hit by torpedoes and bombs from Japanese aircraft. So the ship is like on fire, it's sinking, and the captain gives the order to abandon ship. There's at least one oral history of somebody who was on the Lexington talking about taking the ice cream.
1: This is tape from an interview at the U.S. Naval Institute. The speaker is 69-year-old retired naval officer Admiral Noel A.M. Gaylor. He was on the U.S. Lexington when it was bombed.
0: — Plane elevator. fire. —
2: It's
1: hard to hear him, but he's describing the attack. He says it took about two and a half to three hours after the ship was hit for the captain to give orders to evacuate. There are explosions. A plane elevator catches up in a column of fire and turns over on the deck. Finally, the crew are forced to the stern where the ice cream plant is. Some
2: clown passed the word free ice
1: cream. Sailors were abandoning ship, lining up for free ice cream. Across the... He says some clown passed the word that there was free ice cream. Sailors were abandoning ship, lining up for free ice cream.
2: They go into the ice cream lockers and they take their helmets, because, of course, when you're in an engagement, Everybody has their helmet on. They take their helmets and fill them with ice cream before they abandon ship. it up they've
0: been
1: swimming in salt water for a while.
0: People don't realize how young. They were. God, they were only
1: That's Admiral Gaylor again, saying the sailors couldn't keep the ice cream down once they were swimming in the salt water. Then he says, people don't realize how young they were. God, they were only 18 19. I think,
2: you know, I think a lot of those guys were probably very aware that they might not make it out. You know, even if they make it to a lifeboat or make it out into the water, there's no guarantee that they're going to get rescued. And so what's the thing that's going to bring you
1: some happiness? For these young men, ice cream was so much more than a treat or a calorie-dense meal. It was the reminder of the homes they left behind, of their childhoods with their mom or dad, the lives they hoped to return to, and a dish they hoped to share. So how is it that a simple mixture of sugar, cream, and a seasoning or two can have such a profound effect on people through different periods of history, from the founding of America to 20th century wars? ice cream has always had a unique power to uplift. I'm really not sure that there are any other desserts that can transport me in the same way. And just like Samantha Brown at the beginning of this episode, I too have a childhood ice cream story that my family and I still laugh about to this day. When I was a kid, about once a month, my parents would take my brother, my sister, and me out to friendlies. Now, if you don't know, Friendly's is a typical Americana chain in the Northeast. It sells burgers, fries, and ice cream. Lots and lots of ice cream. Our big treat was ordering the Jim Dandy. It was a massive sundae with bananas, whipped cream, sprinkles, and five scoops of ice cream. My favorite flavor was, and probably still is, rum raisin. I can still picture my brother grinning as they brought this overflowing sundae to our table. Sitting in a booth, we all snatched these long metal spoons and dug feverishly at the Jim Dandy. It was over in a second. All of us are trying to find our own individual scoop. This week, I took a stab at making my own rum raisin ice cream without the help of an ice cream maker. And I have to admit, my little boozy concoction turned out pretty darn good. I'm obviously not a child of the temperance movement. So if you want to try making your own delicious, creamy rum raisin ice cream, head over to our website, ifthisfoodcouldtalk.com. You'll also find a vegan recipe from my Middle Eastern roots. It's called muhalabi. It's made with sugar, rose water, and rice flour. That one's really refreshing on a hot day. If you try either of these recipes, please let me know how it goes. And I'll leave you with this. After preparing a meal, in my family, we always say tislamadeek, which in Arabic means bless your hands. So from my kitchen to yours, tislamadeek, friends. Take care. You just listened to If This Food Could Talk with Claudia Hanna. If you want to support us, you can follow If This Food Could Talk on your favorite podcast listening app. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get updates on bonus content by following me and American Public Television on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. This episode of If This Food Could Talk was hosted by me, Claudia Hanna. Production by Cariad Harmon, Jacob Lewis, Claudia Hanna, Nate Toby, John Barth, and the team at Great Feeling Studios. Editing by Yasmin Khan and sound design by Carriet Harmon and Jason Sheesley. Associate producer, Kate Hayes. If This Food Could Talk is based on an original concept by Claudia Hanna. Executive producers for APT Podcast Studios are Jim Dunford, Cynthia Fenneman, and Sean Halford. Art for this podcast was created by Jay Nungesser. Special thanks to our historian, Sarah Wasberg-Johnson. APT, American Public Television, is the leading syndicator of high-quality, top-rated programming to American public television stations. You can learn more at aptonline.org.